Welcome to Talking With Tech. My name is Chris Bouguet, and I'm here with Rachel Madel. How's it going, Rachel? It's good, Chris. How are you? Good, good. We are uh, recording this on the the week after Thanksgiving. So we're in between Thanksgiving and the winter breaks that'll be coming up in the school school area. So um, what'd you do for Thanksgiving? It was really low key. I actually was on the East Coast and I had dinner with my mom and my brother. And I have to tell you, Chris, I had the best stuffing I've ever had in my entire life. And I'm not even like a big stuffing person. Like I'm not even like, oh, stuffing. I'm like kind of like, oh, soggy bread. Like, no, thank you. But this stuffing was so good. My brother like hit a home run. He hit a home run with the stuffing. Oh, he made it. He did. Oh, man. I, I want to know more about it. I mean, you need to send me the recipe or at least hook me up with your brother so he can tell me about it. In fact, let's have him on the podcast. Let's have him do an episode. It's, it's now Talking With Tech, the cooking show. <laughs> Listen, as long as he makes me stuffing again, like, we'll do whatever we need. <laughs> yeah, it was just, like, so good. And, and my brother is really good at cooking, and he has this way, like... There's foods that I don't even like, like cheesecake is not, I'm not a big fan of cheesecake. He makes the best cheesecake I've ever had in my entire life. So it's just like, I think I don't like these foods. And he's like, just try it. And I'm like, oh my God, I can't stop thinking about your stuffing and your cheesecake. Two very healthy choices, you know. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Not the thing you want to be like eating all the time. Uh, I can eat both of those all the time. It's a problem really. Now it's just like every holiday. I'm like, oh yes, cheesecake, stuffing. Mm." The stuffing was a new one. This is a new recipe for him. So it was a, it was, it was good because it was like kind of crisped at the top. Like it was, that was what made it so good. The texture at the top, he like did some crazy magic and it was like crispy at the top and it was just like so good. Awesome. All right. So what else is going on in your neck of the woods? So I feel like I'm like a broken record, Chris. I keep talking about the same kind of story (laughs) where parents come to me and I have to try to convince them that AAC is a good idea. have a family who reached out and, you know, student is pretty young, um, preschooler, about four, probably. Um, And the student like has some verbal speech that is just not coming quickly um, and suspected apraxia and kind of all these things going on. And it's just like a really tough conversation. And I think that there's definitely a, a mourning process that I think happens with families who assume that their child is going to talk and speak and um, it first starts out as like a speech delay and then you know years pass with intensive speech therapy and the words aren't coming or they're not coming quickly enough and I understand that that's definitely a process that parents have to go through but it's interesting because I for some people it it doesn't it's almost like what I say feels like irrelevant like they're just kind of like set on speech and that's what they want and obviously there's an inkling of them that like is like maybe I should do something like technology um or like they're just following the recommendations of whoever you know referred them to me but it's it's definitely a hard conversation to have and with this specific family that I'm thinking about I was pretty upfront about the process and it's not something that you just take on flippantly or lightly because it's a lot of work and I didn't sugarcoat that at all and I think um, perhaps the family was a little taken back. I forget exactly what I said but I was basically like this is going to be a lot of work so if you're not ready for that um, I get it I'm not going anywhere I'm here but it has to be a commitment 
And um, I think the biggest fear is that when you start using technology that a child will stop using their verbal speech or whatever communication that they currently have, which of course you and I, Chris, know that that is not what happens. There's no research to support that. And in fact, I see a lot of kids whose verbal speech increases when you start giving them a device. Um, But it's just still, it's a really, it's a really challenging conversation to have. Um, I'm lucky that most of the people who come to me are like sold on AAC and they're like, we want you, we, we heard your podcast or we, we heard, we got a referral from, you know, our friend. Um, and so it's, I don't have these conversations that often. Um, but when I do, it's just, it's, it's, it's hard because I'm like, what could I say to possibly <laughs> convince you that the language is important, right? That like we can't sacrifice language development because speech isn't coming or words aren't coming. Um, so it's just like having those conversations can be tricky. How do you feel like it ended up with this parent? Like at the end of your conversation, did they move or did they not move? Well, I actually recommended low tech. I was like, I'm going to send you my communication board bundle, like in a video on how to use it. Just start like modeling core words and see what happens. Um, Cause it, it just felt like it was so on the fence that I just didn't even want like, I don't want people to come and start the process if they're not totally there. Um, just because it's, if you're, if you're one foot in, one foot out, it definitely won't be successful. It's not the kind of thing where you can just like dabble in AAC. Um, you know, it's just too much to learn, too much to do. And so that was my recommendation was just like, you know, figure out if visual support can help, which inevitably I already know it can um but just start using this low-tech option it's you know of course and, and it's also a huge cost too like people come to me and it's like a whole thing like doing an assessment costs money and it's time and it's a lot and so I want to make sure people feel sure um because otherwise if they're not sure then they're not totally invested and then we're not going to see the progress it won't it will fail before it even starts and so that was kind of the conversation that's how we left it um and i feel like i've been having a lot of those conversations lately it's interesting they come in like waves and i've had like a couple families where it's just kind of been this like i'm not sure um you know and of course i i try to support families in any way that i can and it's just like some people just aren't aren't ready yet. Um, so how can we support families um, to kind of get there, I think is is the, the question. I feel like a really good strategy here to have them bring that other foot in, you know, like they're, they've got one foot in the door, they put, but they don't have both feet in, is to connect them with other parents to say like, I was there. I know I was, I had one foot in the door and one foot foot out. Um, here's how I can help you to get that, take that second step and, and, and jump in because I was there, I felt that way, and I moved. And because I moved, my child benefited and our whole life got better. You know, do you feel like that is a a viable strategy is to connect them with other people? I know it's so weird too in my neck of the woods because of confidentiality rules, do you know? It's like how do you connect families and parents? But I feel like that's the answer, you know? I completely agree. I think that there's a lot of like hidden shame when you sometimes when you have a child with a disability and I think that especially in the initial stages when kids are pretty young like a little bit of a language delay or speech delay isn't a big deal but when you start when a child starts getting older and they still have such severely limited communication I think the weight of the disability um 
gets heavier. And I think that there's a whole acceptance piece with that. Um, my experience with some families, especially with younger kids who, you know, aren't making the progress that parents anticipated them making, um, it's kind of a process going through like accepting that there, you know, there's something a little bit bigger than maybe we thought going on here. Um, and so I think because of that, families um, or parents tend to isolate themselves, which as we know is not the move, right? That's the, that's going to make it worse. Um, but I don't find that they're super open or receptive to, um, kind of joining the special needs community because they didn't anticipate, um, you know, having a child with special needs. And so, and I think that's the acceptance piece, right? Like, cause the weight of, Hey, we're going to use a device to talk. Um, I think that that's what people have a hard time kind of sinking their teeth into and like accepting and so I think that that kind of goes along with like the community piece right they're like not they're kind of resisting joining that community um, accepting that like that's where they're at or that's where their child is at so it's tough but I completely agree I mean that's how we know like things will get better but like you have to kind of take people for like where they're at and you know sometimes it's just a slow process I, a strategy I've I've used um, with certain family members that has seemed to work for me um, is bringing up that notion of the least dangerous choice or the least dangerous option, and so the the idea is well, we're going to do something. We have options in front of us. One is continue doing what you've been doing. You know. Um, Another option is to try this intervention um, of a, a device that speaks. There have been situations where students have used that device, families have used that device, where they eventually turn that device back in and go, no, thank you, don't need it anymore because I'm now speaking. I guess the third option would be, and then there's some people that use it for their whole life and uh, use it as either part of their speech, you know, to to supplement what they're using with their speech, or they use it as their primary form of communication. And the sooner you start that, if that's the road you go, so those are your three options. Which one do you think is least dangerous for your child? That's sort of presented to those three, and maybe uh, you, when I'm doing it, I usually have like three visuals, you know, that go along with it, like that. That it kind of points out, like, oh yeah, if I do nothing or I keep kind of like hoping it comes, that's not going to make it work. That's not the least dangerous, you know. Um, if I give them a device and other people have used it, you're saying other people have used it and they give it back and say, don't need it anymore. That seems kind of less dangerous. And if I start using it right away and he does need it for the rest of his life, that's also least dangerous. It's like, sorry, people didn't see my coy look at you. <laughs> I know. Sometimes sometimes we forget that this is yeah. a podcast. My shrug of like, so what do you think to do, you know? Um, I guess what I'm feeling, Rachel, is you keep using the word process, and it's so accurate. And our, our role is how can I get you to experience this process as fast as possible? <laughs> Because right? we're wasting time. That's the way that like my efficient brain works. It's like, no, we're wasting time. Let's go. <laughs> I'm the same way. I always say like, we only have so many minutes. Like there's only so many minutes. I try that to say that to teachers too. You have only so many minutes. So when it's, you know, it's the Wednesday or it's the Tuesday before Thanksgiving or it is the just before winter break. What are you doing with those minutes? Because you only have so many with the kids. It's tough sometimes being a dad because I look at my own kids. I'm like, I only have so many minutes before they leave. You know, <laughs> um, But it's sort of the same idea. It's like you only have so many minutes. So what are you doing with those minutes? I also think it's relevant to touch on this idea that when kids have some verbal speech, 
that like why would we do AAC like they have the ability to talk like why you know it's just that they you know need to learn the words or they need to practice the speech sounds and this idea that the augmentative piece of AAC isn't important like I think we underestimate that piece um actually I have a, sh- a story to share I was on I was on the airplane and I was um frequently what I do on airplanes is I'll go through my pictures my picture roll camera roll and I'll just like clean it up you're in airplane mode like I'm gonna still be efficient <laughs> I do the exact same thing so I stumbled upon a screenshot of a comment on my YouTube channel that I like cannot believe I like overlooked. And I feel like I should read it. I actually pulled it up um, because this is from um, a a video. It's called one of my videos, three AAC myths preventing children with autism from making progress. So I'm going to read it. It's from a woman, um, Brittany Dube, and she's actually agreed to come on the podcast, which I'm really excited about. She says, I use AAC at least once a week. I'm an autistic girl, 26 years old, and married with two dogs. I'm very independent and 98% of the time have no problem talking and communicating. My reading comprehension and verbal skills are far above average. I love to read. It's one of my favorite things to do. However, I also suffer extreme anxiety and often unable to talk to strangers when first meeting them. I can't get the words out and never know when it's my turn to talk, and sometimes I'm too honest especially if I'm rushed to respond to a question immediately without really taking the time to process what was said to me. Using AAC helps give me more time to process as it allows me to take the time to formulate my response by swiping and finding each word, which takes longer than just talking. Also, people are more understanding and willing to wait for a response when they see me use a device to communicate. AAC isn't just for kids. Honestly, sure it's great if AAC is a stepping stone to talking, but if your child prefers AAC to talking and doesn't wish to talk, there's nothing wrong with someone using AAC to communicate their entire lives. Nothing wrong with that at all. I love my phone and tablet and AAC apps so much. I feel like if I like drop my microphone, (laughs) I didn't say it, but like, I mean, come on, like. I thought that that was a perfect example of how we need to really embrace the augmentative piece of AAC because, I mean, she said it for herself, like she, 98% of the time she's fine, she uses verbal speech, but like for that 2% of the time, she needs AAC. And I'm sure it's like that with many individuals. So it's just like, I want every parent who I'm trying to convince, like, who, you know, whose child has some verbal speech and especially has a diagnosis of autism, I want every parent to read that. I think I'm going to make a blog post or something so I can just be like, check this out. <laughs> I mean, obviously we're going to have her on the podcast, which I'm super excited about. Um, but it's just like, come on. I feel like she would be best friends with Alyssa Hillary Zisk. Like if you go back and listen to those episodes, Alyssa's saying the, the exact same thing or very similar, right? So picture this. Are you familiar with a, a radar chart or a spiderweb graphic? Have you ever seen those before? It, they're, they're a tool that I've, I've I used actually in my previous book that I've, I've used talking about assistive technology skills. And I feel like AAC could be represented in that same way. So picture this graphic of a spiderweb, okay? And there's different points, you know. Uh, at the top, the spiderweb comes to a point, And then over to the, uh, if you're going northeast, there's a point, And then to the west, there's a point. But there's uh, layers of spiderwebs in between. So in the center of this thing, it's like 
what is this graph representing? It's when I use AAC. And every person on the planet could plot themselves on this graph. And those different points, like I said, north, northwest, northeast, you know, southeast, could be different situations. And you could actually, I, I'm, I'm make, pointing it like a compass so people can envision it. But imagine you could have 50 to 100 of those points around, you know, and each one of those could be different situations. So uh, to the north, it's like meeting new people. Um, to the northeast, it's going out for drinks with my friends, uh, working um, uh, working side by side with my podcast partner, you know, and so on and so forth. You work around the clock of this spider web with all these different situations and you could plot yourself like, well, when I'm with my podcast partner that I've worked with for three years, I don't use my AAC that much. I'm like a two, but I'm meeting new people. I use my AAC. I'm like a nine. Do you know? And that, I think, whether in the idea that we all use devices to communicate um, and we all use alternative forms of communication besides speech to communicate, that might be a way to visualize it for people to say, to and, and maybe, I, I hate this word, but I'm going to use it, normalize it. Like, yeah, it's not, it, it, we all do it. We all use it. It's just to an extent, and in, to what extent in different areas, you know? Um you take somebody uh, like a Chris Klein, he might might use it much more frequently in different areas th than others, do you know, um, than me, you know, but I still use it in some situations. So uh, I don't know, maybe that's a way of characterizing it so that it breaks down the wall of that it's like that, that stigma that you were talking about, you know, that that shouldn't exist, but does for some reason. <sighs> I know it's really challenging, um, but I think that things are starting to change because um, we're able to have some of these users on our podcast. Um, I think that that's ultimately what we need to hear is from, you know, people like Brittany who are saying, hey, listen, I'm, you know, 26, I'm married, I have, you know, above average, you know, IQ and reading comprehension, all these things. It's like, but I still use AAC. Like there's not a problem with it. Um, I think that we need more people to talk about it. And I think that that will hopefully build more acceptance um, around it and hopefully get parents on board a little bit sooner. Um, just because, you know, as clinicians, we know, it's like I have these conversations and I know that like, this, this kid's coming back to me one way or the other, either it's now or it's in two years from now. And it's like, we can do so much good in that time. Um, but again, it's like, you have to respect the process. And it's like, you can t tell people so you're blue in the face, like your clinical recommendations and your opinion, but ultimately people have to go through the process. So, you know, I'm just trying to finesse how I have these conversations and the kinds of things that I say that can really encourage um, people to adopt AAC sooner versus later. Do you know what else is kind of like a process? Putting together a presentation. And you and I have one coming up for the Assistive Technology Industry Association Conference. Um, it's coming up on January 30th, and, and it's actually a two-parter, right? Just January 30th and February 6th. Do I have those dates right? Yep. And I believe it's at 12 Eastern Standard and 9 Pacific Time, if you're on the West Coast like me. Um, two three-hour sessions with us, Chris. So what's it called, Rachel? So this course is called Designing and Delivering Empowering Experiences to Teach Language Using AAC. Our, our special sauce, Chris, that's what we always talk about. And I'm really excited to 
put this together and I'm really excited for people that decide to join us. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, you can sign up by going to bit.ly slash TWTATIA21. Again, that's bit.ly slash TWTATIA21. Yeah, I'm really pumped for this, Chris. I feel like we're going to share all our best resources. I'm sure we'll talk about coaching because that's our jam, clinician and parent coaching. And um, of course, share a lot of tools. I feel like we're also known for that, Chris, is like lots of good tools to use in your therapy. Absolutely, to make it fun and empowering and, and, and make it something that people want to do rather than they have to do. Speaking of coaching, Chris, today we had the opportunity to coach actually our audio engineer for this podcast, Michaela. She came to us with a question and we were like, wait, 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 would you be willing to be coached on air for the podcast? Um, So it was a really great coaching experience that we had with her. Um, She had some some roadblocks in her practice. She is in uh, school right now as a student, but um, we were able to kind of help her think through some of these challenges that she's been having with a student of hers and um, really excited to share it with all our listeners. So check out our coaching call with Michaela Ball. Hey there! If you love listening to this podcast, we would be so, so grateful for your support to keep it going. By becoming a Patreon member, you can not only help us cover the cost of this podcast, but you can get some really great bonus content as well. We post video tutorials, behind-the-scenes recordings, and bonus segments from our interviews. We would love for you to join us by going to patreon.com slash talkingwithtech. Welcome to Talking With Tech. I'm Rachel Maynard, joined by Chris Bouguet, and we have a special guest today, Michaela. Michaela's our audio engineer. How are you doing, Michaela? Good. How are you doing? Good. So Michaela is here because she is, you're, you're a, a, a clinical a student, right? Or you're a graduate student. Yes. Yeah. And I am in, I am doing my placements. Um, in the schools currently. So you're working with like actual kids. You've gotten to the point where yeah. it's you're not just in classrooms anymore and um, and learning content. You are actually you're trying to practice with actual families and actual kids and working with other educators and, and other people, right? Exactly. And it's really interesting because this is this is the fall um, following COVID. So I actually have an in-person placement um, where I get to work with kiddos face to face, which is unusual. Definitely, definitely. So what brings you in today? What are we talking about? What's going on? Why are you here? Well, I have questions. I, uh, <laughs> I've i been working with several kiddos. I have a couple of nonverbal kiddos, and uh, we've been using a variety of AAC. But I have one kiddo specifically who is um, has been giving cough drop through the district. That's kind of what our district does. And... Um, he also has learned a lot of signs and is also working on speech. So we have three modes of communication and I'm trying to figure out how to balance uh, my intervention time with this kiddo in a way that best helps, you know, the, ho- the whole program, the whole like building language and speech and like just everything. Um, so I'm, I'm looking for advice on how to, uh, 
how to manage multiple modalities. Well, let me ask you a question, Michaela. Like, give me some context as to like how the student is currently using language. Like, give me like a like your last session. Like, what kinds of things were you working on? What kinds of things was he saying? My supervising SLP and I, we kind of split the session, or we do multiple sessions within the week. I've been doing a lot of cough drop with him, which has been mostly aided language input. But she has been, uh, my SLP has been working with um, basically trying to build some functional speech. But we are at, we're at the CV level right now. So, and it's, it's limited. Um, there's a chance that there's some apraxia happening because his vowels, they're imprecise. But there's also a lot of motor um, difficulties as well. He's not always turning on and off his voice for the right consonants. And then um, on top of that, uh, we know he's doing sign. He's doing some sign, but they're very approximated. So that's where we're at. I want to clarify, CV means consonant vowel, right? For any yes. maybe parent that's listening or someone's like, what's a CV? Is that something you, like a resume? <laughs> no, it's uh, <laughs> it's consonant vowel. Okay, and then the second thing I wanted to ask was, or, or talk about is, can you ballpark the grade level or age? Would it be would it be fair to say that this student is kind of an emergent communicator or an early learner? Yes, very much so. We know that uh, he has about 30 signs he knows... You know, we've done standardized testing with him, and uh, the, his receptive language is, is closer to his peers than uh, his expressive. So, You say other language. Do you mean that, the, that English could be a second language for him? No, no second language. I'm thinking different modalities. Gotcha. You mean like ex- how he expresses himself? Yes. Gotcha. Okay. Well, and this is this is really classic apraxia, like severe apraxia. When you have high receptive language and really severely lowered expressive language, um, and so these these are tricky cases to work on um, because you do want to support, especially a motor planning approach to the speech component, um, especially for an early learner. But how do we incorporate AAC? I think that's kind of like the jux of your uh, the the crux of your 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 question, right? Is like what do, what do I do? Like when I have like lots of different things I need to do. <laughs> like how do you maximize your time? Right. The other thing that stood out to me was that he has about 30 signs. That's actually a lot. I mean, a lot of the students that I work with, they might have like two or three um, and they, they don't use them in the right context appropriately. Um, so again, it's it's these are all leading us to high-tech AAC, which luckily this student has. Um, you know, I work with a lot of students who they're not even they're not even there yet, right? Like they haven't been introduced to a high-tech system. Um, so I'm gonna ask another question. What has been the hesitation with perhaps doing all of the things? Like what are go ahead. Yeah, I know. <laughs> No, I see, and I, I feel like we should be doing all the things. I'm trying to figure out how to balance or how to help all of the other individuals communicating with him mm-hmm. um, balance this too. Because the question becomes like, do you sit there and do you model the sign or do you choose to model the speech generating device? And mm-hmm. I don't know. Um, the other thing with his signs is that the the number 30 i think is parent report and Mm -hmm. there's only about two that he does spontaneously that was going to be my next question no no go ahead you're going to describe more um so i mean he he says help because we do Mm -hmm. a lot of activities within the classroom and we we do pull out and we also do push in right now 
So we're seeing a, a lot of interaction in the classroom. And when you say you've seen it, you mean you see him sign those? Yes. You said earlier how you're using cough drop and it's primarily you doing aided language stimulation with him. Um, tell us mm-hmm. about that a little bit. What is that like when you're with him and, and uh, his, his use of the device, you know, and your use of it? Uh, let's just talk about that. Okay. So um, this student uh, had seen cough drop before March happened, but I think it was only a month or so. It was pretty, the student got an account and then shortly after our schools closed. So the student hadn't seen it again until August, and so I brought it out. I think it's a 4x5 board on a on an uh, iPad mini, so it's really small. And we're sitting there, I'm modeling a few things, and I think I was modeling in and on at snack time, and the student kept going up to the corner where no is. And like, not touching it, but just pointing to it, like, no. And he would go back and do his thing, and... Um, It was really kind of funny because I'm like, I'm pretty sure you're telling me you don't want to do this. So that was the first week. (laughs) Okay. But um, since then, we've changed some voices on it to a little boy voice. I actually used my three-year-old son. Um, He just sounds adorable. And then on top of that, we've had other students um, show engagement in the device. And suddenly, um, this kiddo... He was interested in it. So we've gone from him pointing to the corner where it says no to he's been uh, pressing, I think it was uh, want all done on. So he's he's definitely exploring it and using it a little bit in these in these very sit down situations where I've done aided language input, which is at the at the table with the, you know, our small group of like four or five kiddos. Yeah, that, that's been cool to see a progression there. I have another question. If we're thinking about this student, we have some verbal approximations, we have some signs, we have the device. What would you say the student's primary mode of communication is spontaneously on their own? So far, it's not the device. Okay. I would say it's pretty equal between the two signs and then the uh, him using his voice. Oh, can I jump in and ask, if he was hungry, what would he do? If- not so much gestures. There's joint joint gaze so if if he would like the food that's in front he'll be looking at the food and then looking at the teacher and then he might look over at me and you know whoever he knows will help him or he might reach for it to try to get it but um i think it it seems to me like speech is hard totally it is like, yes <laughs> absolutely and he's not very loud there's there's not a lot of power behind it so he can't even really use it as a as a way to get the teacher's attention over the volume of the other kiddos. Mm-hmm. So that's what I see. I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to ask another question. Um, the reason I asked about what is his primary mode of communication <clears throat> is because I, I really believe that we need to start with that right? Like we need to, we need to support what a student's showing us. But part of the problem is he's saying yes, or he may have other approximations, but maybe, maybe communication partners don't understand. Like, you know, grandma who comes from out of town is like, huh? Um, so the whole point of, you know, having AAC is a backup means to communicate a message. Um, and oftentimes, um, you know, sign and speech are easier because, a child has an idea and they try to communicate it fast, right? And so AAC is kind of this extra thing. But like, of course, like 
it's an extra thing, but once kids get used to it and start using it and see everyone else in their you know environment using it, um, it becomes more commonplace. Um, so m- my next question to you is when he you know, answers yes, like w- what is a way that you could support the device in that interaction where he's verbally saying something? What do you think is a really good way that you could support AAC at the same time? Well, I could do the basic Ada language aim input of you said yes, but I feel like receptively he might even be able to take some expansion upon that. Yes, okay. you want, you know, cookies or, mm-hmm. you know, you want that kind of thing. I feel like that would probably be the best way to, I don't know, say yes, you used your voice. Great job. But here's also another way to say it. Um, Absolutely. And I, and I totally agree that the AAC is, or the um, device is a tool for communication repair and breakdown too. And that's, I think that's um, something we need to really highlight for our paraeducators, our teacher, our parents, mm-hmm. because that's another difficult part is adding, adding that in the classroom. I have two follow-up questions. So the first one is, you mentioned cough drop at a 20 approximately 20 words, like a four by five grid or, right? Do you know how that decision was made? You sort of said, like, that's what they do. Like, the school district uses cough drop. Um, It almost sounded like that specific language system first approach that we've talked about. Like, this is just what you get. You know, do you have any idea about um, what would happen if there was more cells, if there was a different system or or what? I'm curious. As far as the different system, um... I think we are just attached to cough drop. I think that's what the district does. That's kind of what I've been told. So let me add my second question here, Michaela, would be fast forward 15 years. This kid is in high school now. What do you envision his communication system to look like? When I say system, I mean the AAC, the the sign language, the verbal. What do you envision that to look like? I'm I'm hoping that he has some functional verbal communication, um, like yes, no, help, stop, some real ad, you know, self advocacy kind of stuff. If there's more than that, that's awesome. But I don't really foresee there being a lot more um just based on on the motor difficulties Uh, as far as sign language i'm hoping that that the kiddo can use all those signs but my concern is in 15 years i mean the kiddo is not necessarily joining the deaf community so he's going to run into communicators that don't know sign. So on the device end, I'd like to see like an 84 cell, something like LAMP. It's got quite a wide variety. It's very robust. I, uh, this kiddo, I know he knows his letters, so I'm hoping there's also the ability to type. I worry that the support is not there to get there. Mm-hmm. Does he have fine motor issues? Yeah. Okay, which is why probably it's a 20, it's a four by five grid. Yeah, and it's also on an iPad mini, so it's like the smallest screen possible. Curious why the iPad mini. I mean, this is a little bit of a tangent, but I feel like I'm going to circle back and talk about why I think it's relevant. The district didn't have a full-size iPad available, so it's an iPad mini, and they just got funded to buy full-size ones, like two days ago, so... It will change. Um, so it's just a, a funding issue. I mean, 
these things these things happen. <laughs> we don't we're not always working in like an ideal situation, unfortunately. Um, the reason I, I brought that up is because as much as we possibly can, and I think what Chris was alluding to is, you know, what what do we want in the future? Because we should reverse engineer it, right? Um, you know, with a robust system, with motor thinking about motor planning, especially for a student who has red flags for apraxia. Um, we know that motor planning is a challenge, at least you know, oral uh, apraxia, and potentially with fine motor issues, it, there's all different kinds of apraxia happening. So that's important. But the other thing I'm thinking about is, you know, we're asking this student to do an extra thing. And if that extra thing is hard to navigate, he's less likely to use it. And if that extra thing is hard to navigate, communication partners are less likely to use it. Um, and so I think that the conversation is important because it's not just about, you know, it's not always just about the long-term goals. Obviously, we want to think about that when we're setting up a student with a device because we know they learn the motor plans. And if we have to change the grid size down the line, um, then we have to retrain all those motor plans. Um, now, sometimes we don't have a choice. It's like, okay, this is the absolute smallest size icon that this student can successfully and independently uh, activate on a device. But um, I find that sometimes we're, we're not doing due diligence um, in our assessments um, to figure out really like what can a student activate when they're motivated. Like it's, and that's the, that's the caveat, like when they're motivated, yeah. um, because I've worked with students that their fine motor skills are like, uh, and I'm kind of like, I'm not sure if this is, this is, this might be a little too small, but I really want to try to get as big a grid size as I can. And kids learn, they, their, their fine motor like improves as, you know, we set that expectation. Um, so anyway, um, this is a little bit of a caveat to talk about, you know, the way the device is set up, but I think it's relevant because sometimes the way the device is set up is what is the roadblock. It's like, I, this feels like a lot. I can't do this. Um, and I, I find that when you have the smaller the grid size, the harder it is to navigate because you don't have as much real estate. There's not as much white space versus something that a system that supports motor planning, you know, we're masking a lot of the vocabulary. Um, and so it's a little bit easier to kind of scan and figure out what, where it is we need to go. So kind of what I hear you suggesting is looking down the line of this kiddo's life path, which I tell you, that is super intimidating. I was trying to sit there to figure out like, okay, here's this high school board I got from, from the high school that, you know, would be in this district. And it's like, I don't know, it's got 60, 60 words on it. I'm like, how do I get this down to 20? I don't even know. That was so, so hard. And I feel so like, I feel so guilty picking. Well, I don't know if you guys have had that feeling, but I'm just like, this is like the most difficult task. Let me ask you about that. Let's let's dig into that for a second. I heard you say that the student has a much higher receptive than expressive, right? Which is not atypical, right? That is uh, the majority of kids that I know, right? Um, it's very it's very rare that you find the opposite, you know, where someone is has higher expressive and less receptive. So, but so, so that's, that's kind of typical is that you have a student that has a higher receptive than express than expressive. Um, if he does, if that's true, right. Um, could 20 words actually be limiting to him? Meaning, yes, we have the fine motor difficulties. So we need it, maybe a cell size that is 
appropriate. But, it, but to Rachel's point, I'm not sure we know what the cell size is that is appropriate because we've only maybe tried one cell size. Um, and uh, again, in the in the words of Bruce Baker, make him prove that you can't, <laughs> you know. So, like, yeah. let me sh- let, let's do this higher. I wonder what would happen. What do you think would happen if you presented him with a um, an option of more more words, you know? This is where it gets tricky because I'm a graduate student and I have a supervising SLP. My understanding is that in the spring before COVID hit and the school shut down, um, that's where she trialed grid size. She, she, I think she would totally agree. She'd rather have the larger size or, you know, smaller cell size, more words on a board with masking because that's what we're doing for another student. Do you have something? It sounds like something was tried in the past, but I, I wonder, and again, no no judgments here, how long that trial was and what what that was used to make the decision. Do you know what I mean? Oh, totally. And based on these kiddos' age, things can, a lot can change in six months. <laughs> so, Especially when you're doing intervention. If you're doing, you know, some fine, he, his fine motor skills are probably improving, you know? Yeah. And that's where it's kind of like trying to think ahead and trying to, it's almost like kind of trying to reach, right? We're trying to reach for that grid size. Um, just because like I said, it's, it's, it does make a huge difference if it feels hard to navigate. Um, kids don't want to do it. Adults won't, don't want to do it. Most people who come to me in my practice, they already have a device and they're like, it's not working. I'm like, okay, like, let me see it. And then I see it and I'm like, I know why it's not working. <laughs> and it's not always that. Um, obviously sometimes there needs to be some additional support and training and, and what have you. But the way we set systems up really can make a huge difference. Um, and it's it's sometimes very child specific too. So you have to kind of play around. Um, this notion of like, we have this thing, this, this system and this grid size, and we know exactly what we need after we do an AAC assessment. Like it, it doesn't always work like that. I can't tell you how many times I've had to retrial, uh, trial something different or retry something or change a grid size or, you know, we have to kind of adapt as we go. And we, we decide to do that because perhaps we're not seeing consistent responses. Perhaps we're seeing like, wow, like this really is, um, you know, a grid size that, that could be like, could be bigger. I had the exact situation um, about a year ago, I did an assessment and I had a similar grid size. And this this kiddo had cortical visual impairment. There's a lot of layers. So it was like, I did a lot of like trialing and trying to figure everything out. We finally decided on a system family buys it. We start using it. A month later, I go into the to the preschool to observe this student. And she's like a little whiz. I'm like, how are your fine motor skills so much better now? Um, to the point where I was like, we need a bigger grid size. Like the only thing that was limiting me from making this grid size bigger was her fine motor. And I gave parents like a very specific list of games to play on an iPad where she had to use an index finger and and drag and all of these things that you can do to support that fine motor. Um, And then it was like, well, well, thank God we're only a month in because I'm going to switch it. And she's doing beautifully now. She's actually on like a seven by 11 grid size. Um, So anyway, this is all to say that these things evolve and change. And so making sure that we think of through that lens. Thank you.